So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Welcome to another episode of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers number 204. It's April the 14th. That's right. For us here in the United States, this is tax weekend for me. Deadlines the 18th or whatever it is. So anyway, I'm glad that you're here. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description below and you'll see all the topics there. I'm Frederick Dunn. And this is the way to be. So if you haven't noticed, we're out in the Way to Be Academy building. Super happy right now. Observation Hive, the smallest one by the way. Look at all the activity in here. April 14th and they are doing fantastic. This is one Observation Hive that didn't even swarm last year. These frames, in case you're wondering, they're in triples. So there are 12 medium frames in that hive. And we're going to install our new observation hive which i have built by horizontal bees and uh it's going to be my favorite observation hive ever and it's going in this building hopefully you can hear them there's a nice hum because there's two other hives larger than this one in the same room and uh, it smells great in here so i know that they're making bee bread and i also know that they're bringing in nectar and we see it all happening through the entrances but how fantastic to have a building that we can sit in you're probably wondering how warm it is outside today. 80 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 27 Celsius. How strong is the wind? Four miles per hour. This morning I was already out planting hyssop plants, the plants, not the seeds, because I want to give a quick shout out, by the way, to a member of our Beekeepers Association named Pat, who has decades of experience with perennials. And what does she bring to our beekeeping breakfast? Some uh, dividings, cuttings, Divisions, that means they already have roots, they're hardened off, they're ready to go, so I can plant them right now. I'm also planting my own hyssop inside and they've been growing through the winter time and they'll be going out probably when we're free from the risk of frost because those are new young plants. But by starting them early, we might get uh, blossoms on them this year. Hyssop, fantastic nectar plant for your bees. What else can we talk about? Uh, oh yeah, my shirt, the Be Informed Partnership. Don't forget, this is April. So the month of April is your only chance to provide the information. It's a nonprofit organization that does a loss and management survey. And we provide our information. How do we keep bees? What do we put them in? What do we start with? What do we end up with? How many losses do we have? What do we treat with? Things like that. And then when we put all that information together, we get uh, best practices out of it. So we will be able to learn from the data. Now, whether you take the, you know, whether you take the survey or not, uh, you'll still have access to the information, but it'd really be great if you were one of the contributors. That way uh, we can know all over the country what's working the best. The longer that survey goes on, the more accurate the information is gonna be, and maybe we'll get a way forward. So um, if you want to know how you can submit a question yourself, there'll be a link down in the video description, or you can go directly to my website, the way to be, and the way to be is spelled B-E-E dot org. There's a page called the way to be. You can fill out the form there. You can be anonymous. You don't have to give all your information. We don't track anything. Uh, it's just a chance for you to submit your topic uh, for consideration. So what else is going on? Planted my plants, got my seedlings going. We'll talk at the end too. Have a new segment. Instead of the fluff segment, it's going to be called the plant of the week. So since I do this every week, why not, for those in my region at least, put out some guides that are relevant to exactly what's going on in the weather where we are. 
So, and where am I? Northwest Pennsylvania, which is in the northeastern United States, which is in a colder area, but there's some people that still can't get into their beach yet. I'm sorry about those. If you're down south, you are, and by south I mean Australia, way down south, you're headed for winter. Sorry about that. So, let's get going. First question comes from Jamie. Pasadena, Maryland. I'm a newbie this year and I was wondering, can I use better comb in my medium honey super or just in my deep brood frames? Thanks for your knowledge. I've watched many of your videos and learned so much. Thank you for watching. And by the way, for those of you who are watching, if you're not a subscriber, just take a pause. Maybe you could subscribe. I know a lot of you watch this and uh, you don't have a YouTube channel. So you don't have YouTube. You just log into it and watch YouTubes. Why should you join and make a YouTube channel? When you do that, you can do lots of cool things. Number one, you can like videos that you like. You can subscribe to channels that you watch, which is a great way to support your channels. And uh, you can post questions. You can't do that if you don't have a YouTube channel. It doesn't mean you have to make your own videos. And if you don't know how to do it because you're not tech sharp, get, uh, get your grandkids to do it. The seven-year-olds will set you right up and then you'll have a channel and then you can make comments and things like that. 60% or more of my viewers are not subscribers. And I have to think that's because they don't have YouTube channels. So highly recommend you do that. How do you do it? Google how to make a YouTube channel and then they'll have a step-by-step -step tutorial and they'll show you exactly what to do. I think it's fantastic. So anyway, thank you for that, Jamie. But uh, the better comb, what we're talking about here is a synthetic pre-drawn comb. We've had some discussions about it recently because some people were getting it upside down, which means it's not gonna work. Your bees aren't gonna use it. And uh, it gives you fully drawn comb so that if you're hiving a swarm late in the year or something, you're making a split and you don't want them to have to use all of those nectar resources to build comb because it is probably the most expensive thing that your bees make from their food resources inside the hive. So if you can do it, it's, uh, it's good to let them build their own, but if you're in a pinch, it helps to have a few frames of drawn cone ready to go, especially for new beekeepers that are just getting started. Now it comes in deep. These are medium frames and the deep frames are what you see in the brood boxes most often. And uh, so would they be good for honey? In other words, do you want to put them in your honey super? I personally, this is my personal preference. Uh, I don't. So I like to put them in, for example, this is an observation hive, but if this were one of my uh, hives out in the apiary, I like to have a deep and a medium. A deep and a medium is the equivalent of three mediums stacked. So this would be the entire hive. The medium would be up here. These bottom two would be represented by a single deep box, right? So when I do that, uh, that's where the better comb would go, if anywhere. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, it's not real beeswax. Now, I'm not saying that it liberates itself into the honey. But I am saying that uh, it doesn't toughen up. And uh, for me, if I'm going to be extracting or running frames through an extractor, centrifugal, they come with tangential, which means the face frame slings out the honey, or they're radial, which means the frames are like spokes on a wheel, right? And uh, I have concerns that the better comb wouldn't hold up to that. So when you're doing honey supers that are for honey consumption that you know are gonna go through some processing, 
um, then I often recommend that you use some kind of heavy waxed plastic foundation. Um, this has foundation and foundationless, so there are differences. The darker comb is used for brood, so that's pretty distinctive. And uh, so I always recommend that's going to last you a very long time. Putting in foundation also helps your bees speed up a little bit. Not very helpful to put plastic foundation in your hives that uh, is not heavy waxed. And that's because sometimes the bees will avoid the surfaces of the plastic foundation if it doesn't have real beeswax coating it. And the more beeswax, the better. So you might also ask, well, what foundations do you recommend? And I have to say that for years and years I've been using Acorn. Uh, before that I used Pierco, and uh, Pierco was okay, but I noticed especially with some of the deep frames, the field of that would flex or bow in and out. Uh, and one of their engineers left Pierco and created a new company called Acorn. And he created a little better frame, in my opinion. So they come in the whole plastic frame, which you can get, or you can get wooden frames and then install the foundation in the wooden frames. So I've used both over the years, and uh, that happens to be my preference. Another equally performing foundation, which is newer now, would be Premier. So those would be interchangeable. So wherever you could get a good deal and get the most wax on it, I would say those are good foundations to use. So, but better comb in a super that you're going to extract honey from, because the other option is sometimes we put foundationless frames up in the super. Why would we do that? Because we want to make cut comb. Now, even though better comb is a uh, kind of an equivalent to beeswax, it is not beeswax. It's made by biochemists. It comes from Hungary. It's sold there under the name Hexacell. And uh, I wouldn't eat it. So I think it's suitable for brood and bee storage for their own use. But for us, if you're going to make cut comb, I would not use it for that. It would definitely be a fast track for that. But for cut comb and things like that, you want it all to come from the bees. So we'll move on to question number two. This is from Ross in Hillsboro, New Hampshire. Bees are doing great. All hives survive winter here in New Hampshire. I am going to try Ross rounds this year. And uh, so funny, we just talked about cut comb. That's what Ross rounds are for. And I was wondering when I should put them on the hives and any other hints to get them drawn out, filled, and capped. Always like, okay, so anyway, uh, Ross rounds, I've done it. So, and because I was making a video about it, I didn't want to fool around. I put them on, there's a Ross Round Super, by the way, distinctive. It's made for the Ross Rounds. Because it accommodates clips, there are spacers in it that are designed so that the bees don't make a bunch of burr comb and ruin that for you. So I do recommend that you get the actual Ross Round Super, and here's why. Uh, all the legwork is taken care of as far as the design goes. It's, it looks like a shallow Super and it's designed specifically to accommodate the Ross rounds, which are an American invention, came out of World War II, and uh, it's one of the easiest ways to collect cut comb because you don't actually cut it. Uh, the bees build it on a foundation of pure beeswax, and they build up both sides, and then when you take it out, all you're doing is put a container cover on the back and on the front, and then you're wrapping it with your label that has your name and contact information on it so that you can sell it, if you're consuming it, you don't need that. And you run it through a cycle in the freezer so that uh, just in case some pesky wax moth get in there, laid some eggs that you didn't detect, the freezing cycle would kill that. 
Now, how did I pick the colonies I wanted that on? Because the pressure was on. I needed to have it work because I needed to show how Ross rounds work. And I'm going to leave a link to that YouTube. So if you want to see step-by-step, step, beginning to end, putting them together to harvesting the finished wax and uh, honey, uh, that's in that video. So you find your most populated colony. And uh, you expand your colony the way you normally would. And instead of a honey super, uh, you put on your Ross Round Super. Now, you want to do that ahead of your heaviest nectar flow on the beehive that has the largest population in it. And that's because they just will put honey and comb in every open available space imaginable. And once they start to work a Ross Round Foundation, it goes very fast. And then all you're doing is waiting for them to cap it off. So it ends up being the top box. You want it to be easy for you to look in on. Now, one of the ways to accelerate it, make sure that it's insulated above the Ross rounds. Make sure that there's no ventilation above the Ross rounds. And I know it seems hot today, it's 80 degrees. But remember that uh, the temperatures are in the 80s when the bees are working beeswax. If it's really cold, they don't work beeswax. So by having that insulated inner cover on top of your Ross Round Super, and where would you get it? One of the places you can get it is betterbee.com. They have a whole kit. And uh, that's where I got mine, paid full price, not at all sponsored by them. They didn't give me one, although I wouldn't have refused if they had. But uh, here's the thing. Once you pay the expense of getting it all set up, then you just have the cartridge replacements after that. And these are big sellers for those of you who are looking for ways to make money. They weigh about nine ounces and uh, you get $13 or better per Ross round. And uh, older people are your biggest customers when it comes to selling something from your hives like that. Now here's what I'm going to do this year. So we've passed it up and you'll look at the video and get your questions answered about uh, how it works and what the details are. There is a company called Cirrusel out of New Zealand. Uh, they take the Ross rounds that are already invented, already patented and all that stuff. And uh, they made brackets for them. So these brackets hold two Ross rounds together in a perfect configuration. And by perfect, I mean it matches the space that would be taken up by a single deep frame of a Langstroth hive. So this is why the wheels are turning for me this year for the Ross rounds. And that's because I have those nucleus hives that I've been stacking up, three high. And then I stop there, I don't go higher than that. So I have 15 deep frames in there. And now that the um, company down in New Zealand has made those, the Cirrusel company, I'm thinking, I'm just gonna pull the center couple of frames from my five frame top nuke box, and I'm gonna put Ross rounds in there, row over row, two of them side by side. That's one of my tests for this year. And the reason I'm choosing that is because they build beeswax amazingly fast. They store their resources extremely efficiently in those narrow, tall configurations. And because that exists, uh, it's a great way for me to test them and try them out. And hopefully I'll share that with you this year. They'll go on the strongest nucleus colonies. Now, if I were really desperate to make sure that that video got made, I would of course take, you know, nucleus hives and I would dismantle a couple of my 10 frame hives. And I would put the nucleus hive in their place and I would max load 
those hives. And then uh, I would put the top box with two frames of Ross rounds from Cirrusel and see how that goes. Because what we would do in that way is we've stacked the deck. We inspected a colony. We know they were extremely productive. We know that the queen's good. We know that they're not making preparations for a swarm. You don't want to do this for swarming. You don't want to do this with a colony that's building queen cells. And then uh, you could load up a vertical stack like that. And I'll bet you that when this nectar flow hits, and when's it going to hit? For those of you who are anywhere near this area or wherever you happen to be, when your dandelions are blooming and filling a field, that's when you have to get your supers on. If these observation hives are any indicator of the productivity that's going on in the other hives in my apiary, uh, the time for expanding these colonies is coming quickly. So that's what I would do. But if you're not going to change your configurations and you just have a standard Langstroth hive, um, then you want to put those Ross Round Supers on your most productive hive. Some people think, well, maybe I'll just put on two Ross Round Supers on one hive that's really strong. I highly recommend you don't do it. Here's why. Uh, the Ross Rounds that are the top box, intimate contact with your insulated inner cover, that's the one they're going to fill up and finish the first. And uh, the second one down might be delayed. The other part of that is when you go to inspect to see what the progress is. Now you have to pull off your top uh, Ross Round Super, which I, the less you meddle with it, the better they work it. So now you have to pull one off just to see if the next one down is also being worked. So I highly recommend you don't do that. I would put one per hive. Just, you know, you can try it. I'm not saying not to, but I'm just trying to explain my thinking behind why I only want to do one per hive. And uh, so question number three comes from Jake from South Australia. Hi Fred, I recently bought my first EPS hive. It is from a company called Hive IQ. By the way, I need to look into them. I did not uh, pay that much attention. And they were at Hive Life, which is the Hive Life Conference, which was down in Sevierville, Tennessee. If you haven't seen uh, the video about that, I highly recommend it because that's a place to learn about new gear. I've noticed that the bees have started chewing the polystyrene inside the lid. Have you had any experience with this issue or heard of bees doing this before? And I'm not sure if I should be concerned with them ingesting the foam and potentially putting it in the honey. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, Jake, here's the thing. Polystyrene. And uh, I don't have any complete polystyrene hives. Probably the closest thing to it would be the Apame hives because polystyrene is uh, sandwiched in between that uh, rigid plastic form. I do use um, polystyrene hive covers. So, uh, like the telescoping lid. And the reason I did that years ago is because I was making my own feeder shims for the tops of the hives, which were boxes. I wanted them to be insulated. And uh, the hive covers that I have, telescoping, standard Langstroth hive telescoping covers are not insulated. Uh, so I put those polystyrene uh, covers right on my inner cover, which most people have. That's what you start off with. And uh, there isn't enough space up there for them to build comb, but here's what the bees did. They went up through that central opening in the inner cover, and they started chewing the polystyrene lid. And uh, the thing of that was, when you walk by your hives, you can listen. You can hear them chewing. 
And uh, so what I learned was not to have any polystyrene exposed directly to the bees. Now I know that means a lot of different things materially. I think 99% of polystyrene is supposed to be air. It also has a lot of different grades, stiffness, rigidity, things like that. But uh, the second part of that was, and I looked for that lid because the bees almost shoot all the way through it. And why would they do that? They're chewing it because they think they're excavating. They're actually not eating it. So the best guess is that it's like pulpy wood because remember that bees, um, you know, would occupy a, a tree or a wooden cavity. And if the wood wasn't sound, if it was pulpy or rotting in some way, the bees would do one of two things. They would chew it away, so they'd excavate it to get rid of that because it's a source of bacteria, right? Anything that holds moisture, that's open-grained, open-celled, um, they would be concerned about that. So they would chew it away, and then once they chewed away enough of it and got to sound material, their next phase would be to coat it with propolis. And that's how they create a barrier, a waterproof seal on the wood inside their hive. And it also becomes a big uh, antibacterial move. So it's medication within the hive. The hive itself can defeat pathogens. So when they got to this polystyrene and they started chewing it, and this didn't happen on every hive, by the way, and I was using lysine covers. No slam on that company. I think it would probably be the same with all of your polystyrene hive configurations. So the bees that do start to chew it, continue to chew it, and they'll eat a hole right through it. The other part of that is if you have chickens, and I do, my chickens go around, and if there's something at pecking height for them, I was noticing that my hive cover was rounded off at the edges. I wish I could show it to you because I painted it thinking that would stop the chickens. Chickens aren't terribly smart, and if for some reason they eat polystyrene, they just love it. So, but all you need is one chicken to start. In other words, they could walk past that beehive for a year or two years, and then one chicken stops and gives it a little peck and a little piece of it comes off. And after that, game on, they all start chipping away at it. So, <clears throat> and I do this year, I'm evaluating a, I hope I don't get the wrong name. I think it's a Lysen um, nucleus hive that I'm gonna test and evaluate this year. So that'll be the first exposed polystyrene hive I've ever used. So grain of salt there that I've not used a polystyrene hive, it might be tough enough. I'm sure they knew about the surface of it. It's designed for bees, but uh, I've never had success with polystyrene being exposed directly to the honeybees. So, but as far as it making it to the honey, I don't think so because they're not ingesting it. They're scraping it, excavating it, and getting it out of the hive. So I think you're safe there. And uh, if they are excavating parts of your polystyrene hives, and those of you who've had experience with that, let us know what you did about it. You know, instinctively, I would be tempted to clad it with something. Uh, I wouldn't paint it because they'll just chew the paint. That's why we don't paint the interior of our beehives. But uh, I would think about some kind of cladding. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, see, it just hit me. If I had a polystyrene interior surface and I wanted to make sure that the bees didn't chew it, why not go the extra step and do something to the interior surface of your hive and benefit the bees? What do you think it would be? That would also protect the polystyrene exposed to the bees. What do you think? I think those propolis traps, they look like really thin, really fine queen excluders. I'm gonna recommend propolis traps. 
because they get mounted to the surface of the interior of the hive. Uh, they're very thin and the bees perceive that as little cracks and fissures in the surface and that inspires them to propolize. And that's going to happen a lot during the springtime. So propolis traps, propolis, propolis, propolis. That's interchangeable by the way. But uh, just thought of that. I think that would be a good thing to do. They're made for the hives. It would protect your polystyrene. What are your thoughts? I probably could have done that to my polystyrene cover now that I'm thinking about that. They would have propolized that. It would have added to the benefits of the hive. Interesting. Suddenly inspired. Question number three comes from Brian, Kingdom City, Missouri. Says, I have a question about chickens. Although I do have five Lane's hives, I have eight buff Orpington chicks, and I think they're all female. I would like to get a rooster at some point, maybe next spring or this fall. If I do introduce a rooster, would you say that the eggs would be fertile? Yes, they would. By the time your chickens are mature enough, depending on the breed of chicken, the stock that you have, uh, they come into lay at about six months, five to six months, depending on what they are. And uh, if you get a rooster and once that rooster is mature, a rooster, the general rule is one to 10. One rooster to 10 hens if you expect viable eggs for incubation. And so, yeah, you get a rooster, you're gonna have uh, fertile eggs that you can incubate. And uh, the other thing is how long uh, would you have to withdraw a rooster? Let me just throw that in there. Uh, before they would stop laying fertile eggs, it's about two weeks. So when a rooster mounts a hen, sorry if that's too graphic for you. When a rooster mounts a hen, uh, she could be fertilizing, uh, she could be producing fertile eggs for the next two weeks. That's why if you're separating birds because you want to have a specific rooster mating with specific hens, uh, then you separate them for a minimum of two weeks, then you can put them back together and then you can count on that rooster being the, the father of uh, the chicks that will come from those hens. So there you go. It's very easy. It's been a long time since I've had chicken questions. Question number four comes from AJ from Dayton, Ohio. I'm currently building your long lang. I was wondering, what do you use to winter that hive? A bee cozy or do you wrap it? I don't use a bee cozy and I don't wrap it. So, and for those of you who are wondering, I'll put a link down in the video description also if you want to see the plans for the Long Langstroth hives that uh, are configured based on my years of experience with bees in general and uh, the horizontal hives that, that I want personally to have here. Uh, those prints are available and they're free use, so you can check them out. But uh, all I did was, the way the Long Langstroth hive works is we have those deep frames running the full length of it. And uh, then there's cover boards. So there's bee space, three eighths of an inch above the backs of your frames. And then uh, I have cover boards there. The cover boards are four inches wide. They run the full length of it. And my cover boards are an inch thick, but yours would likely be three quarters of an inch thick. Really doesn't matter. The bees will propolize all those seams. So that's why after you've done your last inspection, leave them alone before the really cold weather gets in because the bees seal things up themselves. Air movement is more important than the insulation alone. And so last year, last winter, as we went into that, so the winter that's just passed, what did I do differently? 
well, I got on this bub double bubble insulation kick because my uh, horizontal hive, my long Langstroth in particular, has two inch rigid foam board insulation on it. That's R10, so that's a R value of 10. That seems like a lot. And then there's a big airspace there because it is a, a gable style roof. So it has a pitch to it. Comes up like this. So I had all this space in here and then the cover board's down here and I have two by fours around the edge of that to create a space in case I wanted to put a rapid round or some kind of feeder in there. So one of my cover boards or a couple of cover boards would have feeder holes in them that are plugged when they're not in use. And then I can move that over where I think the brood is and then put a feeder on that if I needed to, but I didn't this year. So what I did this year was I left that rigid foam board in place, but one of the things I was missing when the Long Langstroth Hive closes, that's just two by four stock sitting on top of two by four stock. And if you look, you know, at the right level down between those where they fit together because wood ages and as it ages, it has a tendency to shrink a little bit or become a tiny bit irregular. And if you can see little, little peaks of light coming through those two, then uh, they're not air sealed. So I thought, hmm, not only would I put the insulation of the double bubble on top of those cover boards, but I would also make a template running the perimeter of that hive. And when I close the top down, I would use double bubble in between and that would accommodate all those irregularities. It's still clamped nice and stopped any and all air movement, even on the windiest winter day. And I did that for my lands hives too, because they came uninsulated. And guess what? They came through winter gangbusters. So that's what I do. I don't wrap it. So from the outside, you can't tell any difference. And now when I'm doing an inspection, double bubble, just roll it up, sit it in a hive butler or whatever while I'm doing my inspections. And then when I'm done, roll them right back on. Because here's the thing. A lot of people talk about the way they keep their bees. What do you do in the summer? What do you do in the winter? For me, nothing different. That's because insulation benefits your bees in summer and winter. It shields them from summer heat. It also helps them control the climate inside the hive without being impacted. When I did thermal scans on the outside of the beehives that have the standard Langstroth metal clad outer telescoping covers, the temperatures exceeded 135 degrees Fahrenheit. That metal cladding is, you know, silver in color. It's pretty reflective, so it's not painted black or something. And uh, I was amazed by how hot that gets. That heat transmits inside and what interrupts it? Your inner cover. The inner cover is just a piece of Luon with some wooden frame around it that's about three quarters of an inch thick. And that transmits the heat right down too. So if you're running a standard Langstroth hive without a, uh, you know, a spacer up there with some kind of insulation in it, the bees can cope with it. I don't want to pretend they can't because they can and they do. The difference is if you provide them with an insulated inner cover up there and you shield them from that heat. So that's why I put on those polystyrene covers, for example. Uh, you shield them from that heat. That's less energy they have to expend to control the climate inside the hive. Now, you don't have to go very far to look at commercial beekeepers and see that most of them are using migratory covers. That's a single thickness, three quarter inch piece of wooden stock 
with a lip that overlays the front and the back and the sides are flush. And your bees are surviving in that. Now, that just means that they need more resources to stay cool. We know the bees can stay cool through a single entrance, a very small entrance in fact, under very challenging circumstances, environmentally speaking. So by adding that bit of insulation up there in a nice insulated cover, you can uh, make big changes as far as your bees' ability to cope with the inner climate that they're trying to control themselves. So yeah, that's what I do. And uh, that's described also in the prints, how we arrange them, insulation, placement, and things like that. And maybe we need to update the double bubble as a uh, gasket because when you use it as a gasket, I looked at household you know, trim that you get from Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever and uh, that you could use as a weather gasket. So when it came down, it seemed like that would be a good thing to use. That stuff is held on by an adhesive. It has a shelf life. So eventually you're gonna be replacing it. And uh, I just thought, wow, the double bubble, it doesn't stick to it at all. Cheap, easy to uh, replace. So question number five comes from Steve Orangeville, Ontario, Canada. With Varroa being a vector of pathogens, do you want drones that are bitten to possibly pass on problems while mating? Or would the risk be low enough to accept? <clears throat> now, I don't know if this comes about, this question, uh, because I did a recent interview with a professor, a postdoc that was doing uh, research. His name is Zach. And uh, he was doing research on the drones and the Varroa's uh, attraction to drones. So what he was learning was, we all know, or if you've been studying bees for a while, you know that the Varroa destructor mites are attracted to drone brood. And that's why, because drones have the longest brood cycle in the hive and they're big and they're fat and there's a lot of resources in there. And it gives a Varroa destructor mite two reproductive cycles during that pupa phase. But what he discovered was that uh, when the drones emerge, when a two or three day old drone is out moving around on the frames, that uh, the Varroa destructor mites demonstrate a preference for those young drones over nurse bees. And they'll actually leave the brood frames of workers and they'll leave the bodies of nurse bees in preference for the body of a, of a drone that is young. So these aren't the drones that have been out mating that come back that have, you know, um, are a couple weeks old and so on. These are the new, young, fresh drones. So then uh, knowing that the mites are likely to feed on the drones, first of all, it's likely that they may have fed on them during their development. So they've passed on their pathogens. And now that we know that they're feeding on them as adults, once they emerge and they uh, emerge from their cells, and we know the Varroa mites are all over them. The study was pretty graphic on that, how many mites were on the drones. And uh, so now it stands to reason that your drones now are vectors of the pathogens that the Varroa destructor mites are passing around. That's true. The good news about the drones is that they don't feed other bees. So they get fed. So that's one problem out of the way. In other words, they're receiving, they're not passing on their their diseases that they're carrying or potentially carrying to the nurse bees that are feeding them. Nurse bees are the pushovers. They're the ones most likely to feed the drones. 
So then the next thing is, since they're carrying these pathogens, here's my thinking on that. When uh, a virgin queen flies out and she finds a drone congregation area where she plans to be mated, uh, and she can fly several miles to that, by the way, so we're talking about other people's drones, 99 times out of 99. And so the drones, uh, they go to mate with her, they're in intense competition. It's called a drone comet. They fly after the queen and they are racing after her and they want to mate with the queen. So this is like a steeplechase in the air. And uh, here's what I think. Those drones that are not healthy will not succeed in that competitive environment. That's why I hope that wherever these queens go, that there are thousands of drones in the air when they get there. Because we want competition to be high and I want the fastest and healthiest and most capable drones from the best stock to mate with your queens. So if a drone we're at the point where we're heavily diseased what are his chances of out flying and out mating he only gets to mate once if ever and the percentage of drones that actually achieve mating is extremely small um so i think that uh, i think they're if they're in poor health because the worst case scenario of course of course is that they get to form wing virus or something happens to their wings their flight muscles and things like that so that they never get off the ground, literally. Um, so the other part of that is, uh, I just think they're not gonna be healthy enough to beat them out. I think it is survival of the fittest. And I think that you would come into a problem with that if you were doing insemination. So if you do insemination, you wanna make sure that the stock that you're using, of course, is absolutely as clean as it possibly can be. And I don't do uh, insemination. For those of you who don't know what that is, you're going to get the sperm from the drones and then you're going to inseminate the queen from stock of your choosing. So that means you have total control of the genomes that you're using. So, genetics. So, the risk is low. I know I gave a long answer to that, but I wanted to explain kind of my thought behind it. I have no way of knowing, you know, what drones are passing on, but we want them to pass on genetic resources. We don't want them passing on pathogens. And if that showed in the queen, that would be poor. Now here's the good news of that too. Not just one drone is gonna mate with the queen. And there's all this discussion about how many drones mate with the queens. And uh, there are sensors in the queen's spermatheca. The spermatheca is this tiny organ in the bee, in the queen, where they store sperm. And uh, they have pressure sensors in there. So in other words, she might mate with five drones and her pressure sensors would tell her that she has enough and she can fly back. On the flip side of that, maybe the drones are not producing enough genetic resources for her. And she could continue to mate with 20, even more drones uh, because she only has a capacity for so much. And there are sensors that tell her when she's attained that capacity and then she comes home with the remnants of the last reproductive organ of the last drone that she mated with, and that's called the mating sign. So I think uh, they're not gonna do well in that environment. Okay, question number six comes from Randy from uh, Parkersburg, Iowa. I will get right to the question. Last July, 2022, I split my hives with varying levels of Varroa mites. I kept the queen in the original position with half the resources and only one frame of open brood. 
I then use oxalic acid vapors on that colony the next day. The queenless split with all the rest of the brood and half the resources. I left in the apiary to raise the new queen. Most did. I used OA vapor uh, on them after all brood had hatched out. Checked mite levels in late August or October. Count was two or less with alcohol wash. Fed lots of one-to-one -one sugar in the fall and kept sugar on all winter. 20 out of 24 colonies survived. Best I ever had. Would this work in spring? Or is it too aggressive? Thanks. Okay, so how you choose to reproduce or split your colonies in spring kind of goes hand in hand with what I was talking about with selecting for the Ross rounds. Uh, the strongest, most productive, most populous uh, colonies that you have. If you know their Varroa history, that's a very good indicator of colonies that you want to work with and reproduce from. Because they're building up, they're planning to reproduce. They're super organisms and their whole goal in life is to eat and reproduce and survive. So they're trying to reproduce another colony, they want to push one out. So that's actually in concert with uh, what would be a good time to make the splits yourself, to divide these hives and uh, do what you need to do. The larger the population, the better they're gonna manage whatever you do to them. So when we get into spring, and if you wanna make splits, the colonies that are at risk of swarming, uh, for me, it's an automatic split. If, when I'm doing an inspection of a colony, I see multiple queen cells being developed. Uh, if they're doing that, they're, on their, they're going anyway, so that's a great time to isolate the queen and uh, pull a couple of frames as you've described and create your splits from those. So splitting and how you choose to do it, mine are referred to as walk-away splits. Because I don't introduce a new queen, I let them build their own and I hold the other queen in reserve. So that's what I do and uh, I think that's a judgment call for every beekeeper wherever you are because the time to be doing splits is when a good amount of the nectar flow is still ahead of you. How would you know where you live, what the nectar flows might be if you're brand new to beekeeping and you don't have several years to look back on to know when the poor times of year were for your bees? You go to a website called Beescape, B-E-E-S-C-A-P-E dot org, and uh, you punch in your address there and uh, you'll find out what the environment's like, what kind of forage there is for your bees, and they will rate that, they'll grade it. That was kind of good news for us uh, here in the state of Pennsylvania because they passed laws and of course decided how to move money around and Department of Agriculture money and stuff like that. And they just approved uh, turning our highway easements into pollinator resources. So now the state of Pennsylvania is funded to grow pollinator friendly flowers and plants all along the highways, the dividing areas, the clover leaves and all the stuff where there are green spaces under the control of the highway department. How good is that? Because it also reduces the amount of mowing that they'll be doing. I'm a fan. The more you mow, the, <laughs> the more you know, the less you'll mow. So that's it on that for Randy. So now we're going to do a wrap up here. So the plan of the week, right, for beekeepers in my neck of the woods. So please do the Bee Informed Partnership um, Loss and Management Survey 
or at least go there and read if you're new and you don't have anything to contribute if you're a brand new beekeeper, go to the website and uh, create a login if you want to and uh, see what the information is based on years past. And the more people that participate, the more we know collectively. So it's really valuable. Nonprofit organization. So anyway, uh, stage your supers. So in other words, if you're going to be putting supers, and, and probably you are, if you're coming into spring and you had strong colonies last year, uh, have your supers ready to go. Have the frames in them, have everything ready to go. You don't be running around just because you're doing an inspection all of a sudden, oh, these bees are maxed out. They've already filled. All the resources are full and uh, they're gonna swarm because they're now uh, plugged up with honey which is called honey bound. Anyway, have your swarm traps out. If you're gonna to try to catch swarms, if you wanna expand your apiary that way, this is the time of year to do it. The scouts for the colonies that are making preparations for swarming will be out looking for these cavities weeks in advance. So it's not too early to go ahead and put swarm traps out. And I don't have a, a preference for what style design of swarm trap to use. Uh, only that the optimum size is 10 gallon, a single 10 frame deep uh, would be about the size, but sometimes the vertical configuration. So if you did two nukes, five over five, uh, those might be good swarm traps. And I uh, put them in an area at the edge of woods where it faces a clearing, where it gets some sun, where there's a clear flyway to it. And the optimum height is 10 to 12 feet, but if you put them at six or eight feet, you still might be successful. So don't go falling off of ladders just to do that. Uh, stage nucleus hives, if you're going to use those as uh, resources, the way I described before, if uh, you come across a colony, they're making preparations to swarm, and there's the queen, she's still there, you have a chance. Collect, this, collect the queen, collect a couple frames of brood, put them in a nucleus hive, let them go through their whole swarm cycle, and uh, see if they start uh, producing new larvae, if you see eggs and everything down the pike, and they made it, and they survived, that's great. You've got two colonies now. On the other hand, if they created new queens and then you come back later and three weeks down the road, there's no eggs in there. Then you're risking having laying workers. Oh, we saved the queen before and now we don't have to go out and get one. We bring her back or we can reintroduce uh, frames of eggs from it. So either way, you have lots of options then, but what you're not is out of bees and out of options because you've got the queen, you've got resources. So I recommend staging nucleus hives, having them ready to go. Uh, now that we're coming into spring, inspect and level all of your hives. The critical level is side to side because bees build comb and they build comb with gravity. So side to side, level everything up. You probably had frost heaving and things like that. That might have shifted things around. And you can tilt towards the landing board. We do that in winter. I recommend that you do that during summer too because if we get heavy rains, why have the rainwater wash in on your landing board? assuming they're solid landing boards. And uh, box alignment. Sometimes you'll be looking at your beehives and there'll be a couple of boxes a little skewed. And you'll find that they're sealed in pretty tight with propolis. But we get a nice hot day like today when it hits 80 degrees and it's sunny out. You go out there with a bar clamp. I know you know what bar clamps are. The screw type, not the ratchet type. Screw type. Uh, and you put those, you know, one on the top box that's a little off in the bottom box and you ease them together just by snugging up your bar clamp. The bees don't know what you're doing. There's no banging and clanking. They don't care. You don't have, I, I was about to say you don't have to wear any protection. I would wear a veil just in case, you never know. 
And uh, so go out and just do some general maintenance, general cleanup and alignment and leveling and stuff like that. If you don't own a small spirit level that you can carry around in your pocket, highly recommend you get one because those are handy to have. Uh, and uh, if you have hive visors on your hives and you had them low for winter time to keep the snow off the landing boards, winter's gone, thank goodness. Now we can raise your hive visors up more because they're going to provide a space when your be bees are bearding. And what bearding is, is when they're bringing in a bunch of nectar, because the nectar flows ahead, you're going to have a whole bunch of surplus workers gathering on the outside of your hive and just sitting there. The bearding gets its name because here's the landing board and they'll form a beard of bees under the landing board. By having a high visor up above on your top box, now instead of bearding down there, which is in skunk range and who knows whatever else, um, they'll move up and they'll collect underneath that high visor and be sheltered from heavy dew, frost, rain, whatever might hit them at night. So those are the... Uh, advice for the plan of the week. So I hope you enjoyed uh, today's Q&A. It's available also as a podcast. So the link to the podcast will also be down in the video description. You can listen while you work or drive or whatever. And I want to thank you for being here today. And I uh, hope that your weekend is as great as ours is looking. And if you're in the United States, don't forget, sad but true, your taxes are due. Thanks for being here.